Good evening, everyone. Good to see you all uh, out here tonight. We're very excited about the presentations uh, that we're going to be doing the next uh, 10 days. So I know that you all will not be disappointed. Um, thank you all for coming out. Thank you for taking time out from your busy schedules and other things uh, to come and hear a word from God to hear Bible prophecy. And so, again, we're very excited. Thank you for coming out. As we get started, I want to share some announcements with you so that you know um, how things are going to work and, and what's going on. So there are free seminar outlines with Bible text, which are available each evening. You'll be getting some of these, okay? Those are everything in this seminar is totally free, okay? We're not going to be uh, trying to hit you up for money or anything like that. The church is paying for this seminar, so we just want to let you all know everything that you receive is free. Um, so there's church out, there's a, a, a outlines every night, and schedules for the series are available also <clears throat> as you leave. So, of course, as you got your... Um, your uh, mail, your flyer in the mail, of course, that has a schedule there. And um, we want to let you know, starting tomorrow night, there will also be food available, some refreshments, because we will be having uh, two meetings, um, and, and the pastor will talk a little bit more about that, uh, the reviews that they're going to be doing every night. And so we're going to be having food from 6.35 to about 7.15 every evening. And we want to encourage you, please, we're preparing plenty of food for people to come and to have food. So as you walk out those doors you came in, if you'll keep going down the hallway um, and then to your left and again to your right, there is a fellowship hall back there where there's plenty of food on the nights that we have it for everybody who comes out. So please, we want to encourage you to uh, have some food with us, and those are the times. Yep, and we have additional seating back there as well, too, I was reminded, if we need it. If there's an overflow, there's additional seating with a big screen back there to watch and listen to the presentations. Uh, so we ask that uh, very politely that you will turn off your cell phones or put them on vibrate so there's no um, disturbances during the meetings as well. Um, so this Sunday and following, every day after Sunday, there will be uh, DVD recordings and books will be available for purchase. So you can actually purchase books and DVDs here uh, of the presentations that you are, of the material of the presentations that you are experiencing here um, in, in, in this place. Or you can also go on to islamandchristianity.org and get the material online that way as well. So at this time, we will have a word of prayer, and then uh, our speaker will get started. His name is Tim Rosenberg. He's coming all the way from Boise, Idaho, and he has been doing these meetings for years 
And he goes all over the country, and he's even traveled internationally doing these presentations, very exciting presentations uh, from the Bible on end-time prophecy. So again, I know that you're not going to be disappointed, and I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, everybody experiencing these meetings. So let's have a word of prayer, and then our speaker will get started. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for everybody who has come out here. Thank you for those who have uh, received the flyers or invitations. And um, we know, God, that you have led them here. And we want to pray tonight that your Holy Spirit will be present in this place. We ask and pray that you would speak to us through your word. Um, Help us to see Jesus. And we pray that you would guide and lead Pastor Tim As he gives these presentations, please make it clear to us tonight, God, and may we be ready for the soon return of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. There we go. And... Now, this morning I was presenting up in northwestern Arkansas, finished that one around noon and headed down here so I could be with you. You know, for a long time during COVID, I couldn't do anything because nobody was open for anything. And now all of a sudden, things get packed tight together. It's the way it goes. Um, I do want to mention something about that registration card you filled out. If you attend eight of the ten presentations you're going to get one of these concordances. And uh, I don't know if you've used a concordance or not, but it is a really good study tool. You don't need it if you've read the entire Bible through and you have a perfect memory. (laughs) If that did not describe you, you need one. (laughs) Have you ever thought, I know it's in the Bible somewhere, and you've got an idea of what it says, but you can't remember where it was. Like all the time, you've had that, right? You look up the key words of what you can remember, and it'll show you where that phrase is in the Bible. And you can find it. Also, we're going to be talking in the Bible prophecy quite a bit about, about like the king of the north and the king of the south. You can look up the terms north and the terms south in here, and you can find all kinds of information about it on your own. Do you know what this really is? Whenever you hear a speaker, you can look up the the terms or the words that he's using and find out if what he's saying or she's saying matches what the Bible says. You can use it as a truth detector often. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And yes, I want you to study into it and make sure that what I say is accurate. Because it doesn't matter what I say, only if it's accurate from the word. I'll tell you right up front, my goal is to present the Bible. I will not promise to be politically correct. My goal is to be biblically correct. However, to be biblically correct, it says you have to be ready to share what you believe with gentleness and respect. So even if I'm not biblically correct, I have to be respectful about it. I mean, if I'm not spiritually... uh, Let's get this straight. Drove too long today. Uh, If I'm not politically correct, I still have to be respectful and kind, according to the Bible. So there's the challenge that I work with. And if you have any questions along the line, I really hope that you'll ask me. 
And uh, some of you have asked where we are and come from and family. Well, there's my family. It is an older picture. The little guy on the front left corner, he's 20 years old now. Um, and the young lady in the back left corner, she has four kids of her own. The youngest two are twins that are eight years old. So it is an older picture. The reason it's an older picture, the young lady, the taller one on the right, died of leukemia not long after that. So it's, we're limited to get our whole family together, okay? And, uh, but she gave us the greatest gift that anyone can give. She was a committed Christian before she got sick, never wavered through it. Actually, the way she faced sickness and death caused many young people and older people to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. So when you have a young person that is committed to Jesus and never wavers and dies trusting completely in Jesus Christ, you know that's the best gift you can have. And you don't need to live in fear when you're trusting Jesus Christ young lady that was not afraid of death and just looked it right in the eye and went right through it because she trusted Jesus. So, we live in Idaho. Our hills are slightly larger than yours, and they're a lot ruggeder. The air is different, too. I'm sweating here. Now, I've lived in Texas before, and I've lived in Louisiana, so I know what humidity is. I like not having humidity. (laughs) But anyway, this is right near our home. And it's in the Sawtooth Wilderness area. That's my wife picking tomatoes in our garden. We cut them off at six and a half feet tall. And uh, by the way, it doesn't rain much at our house. We get less than 12 inches of precipitation all year long. And, uh, but it grows really good when you put water in the ground. That's where we get our water. That's actually a winter carnival up in McCall, Idaho, just north of us. Now, where we live, very little snow. But where I live, I can look up into the mountains, and there's lots of snow up there. McCall, Idaho is about 2,000 feet higher than us up the same river that we live on, and I've seen like 14 or more feet of snow in McCall in town, and there's more in the mountains above it. Of course, we, can ha- we still have some snow up there in August, so, um, so all that melts in the summertime and comes down our valleys and we irrigate with it. We don't need rain. And it's kind of an interesting situation God set up. So you came to hear about Bible prophecy. And that's what we're going to share. And I'm not going to be trying to tell you everything Seventh-day Adventists believe. If you want to find that out, check it on your registration form. Pastor will be glad to tell you. We're going to cover Daniel 11.2 through 12.3. We're starting in 11.2 tonight. By the time we get done, we'll be in 12.3. Ten days. Oh, man, that's going to be slow. No, it won't take long, and you'll be telling me the same thing almost everybody tells me, that I'm giving you a drink with a fire hose. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming at you, it's going to keep coming, but it's going to settle in and it's going to make sense to you in a little bit. All right? So hang in there with me. Uh, there is a lot in this stuff. So we're, I'm going to be using scripture and history to share with you what, how accurate God's word has been and take that into the future to show you what is and what will be. 
All right. In 2015, Franklin Graham said the following. The militant Islamic terrorist group ISIS has released a video called A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross, showing the beheadings of the 21 Egyptian Christians. As we mourn with the families of those 21 martyrs, we'd better take this warning seriously, as these acts of terror will only spread throughout Europe and the United States. The storm is coming. I mostly agree with that statement, except I will tell you the storm had already begun before that he said that. I'm going to show you that the storm began in the summer of 2014, according to the prophecies. And it is following sequentially right on track right now. And it is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. During his inauguration back in 2017, Trump said, we will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth. He actually tried. He said he did it. But the Islamic State is roaring back in Africa right now. Others ask me, will there be another September 11 type event? 9-11? I don't know. I do know it's going to get worse. And if some of the radical Muslims had their way, it would happen. It wouldn't happen if some of the moderate Muslims had their way. But can you tell me What's going to happen by tomorrow this time? I can't tell you that either. I can give you the general outline of what to expect, and that's what I'll do, but I can't tell you the day it will happen or exactly what will happen. Bit close. Others ask me if there's going to be an all-out nuclear war, and actually that one I have a simple answer for. No. (laughs) How do I know that? Because the Bible said when Jesus returns, there will be living people on this planet. If there was an all-out nuclear war, there wouldn't be anybody left. That doesn't mean you couldn't have limited nuclear warfare. Because God allowed the United States to use nuclear weapons at the end of World War II. There could still be limited nuclear exchange. But there will not be an all-out nuclear war. But you don't need to be surprised by what happens. Ladies... Have you ever heard somebody say, I didn't know I was pregnant till I was giving birth? I see people say, nodding their heads and laughing at the same time. So why are you laughing? Because you have to overlook some really strong indicators. You know, that is really serious indigestion when that knee's going across the, you know, or whatever. Uh, But some people have been surprised, right? Look at what the Bible says, using that as an example. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Did you catch? If you're paying attention to Bible prophecy, you should not be surprised. I told you the events of 2014 is when the storm began. I'd actually written a book in 2011 indicating what to watch for for the beginning of the storm, and it happened in 2014. It wasn't a surprise to me. I was waiting for it. You don't have to be surprised. 
God, through his word, has revealed many other things, too. Just a brief overview of some general basics in Matthew 24, Jesus speaking. Now, as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came in privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. False Christ, wars and rumors of wars. Have any of those around? I've had to deal with some false Christ. I actually had Jesus show up to one of my meetings one time. At least he claimed he was. That was interesting. Wasn't a lot of fun, but it was interesting. Uh, Wars and rumors of wars? Boy, we've had those, haven't we? Here's one. Senior Tehran, or that's Iranian officials, are recommending a preemptive strike against Israel to prevent an Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear reactors, a senior Islamic Republic official told foreign diplomats two weeks ago in London. The thing of it is, look at the date. That's a rumor of war that's been hanging on the edge of exploding for a long, long time. It could have been written this week. Israel and Iran don't like each other. You know, Israel got hit within the last few weeks with about 4,000 missiles. They were shot by the Palestinians in Gaza. Do you know where the Palestinians get their missiles? From Iran. You know, Iran keeps having things blow up around the country. They lost their largest warship during this last few days out in the Gulf of Oman, I think it was, part of the Persian Gulf. Everybody's wondering if Israel did it, because Israel does that kind of stuff. Iran shoots, has missiles shot into Israel, and all over Iran, nuclear, reactor, I mean, nuclear accidents keep happening. And You may not realize it, but there is already what's called a shadow war going on between the two, and it could break into a hot war very quickly at any time. Um, this is more recent. The chief of Iran's paramilitary revolutionary guard threatened Saturday to go after everyone who had a role in a top general's January killing during a U.S. drone strike in Iraq. So they actually have on their hit list ex-President Trump and all the commanders that were involved. In case you wondered why, when Trump left office, his family all got Secret Service Protection, which is a step beyond the norm because they're on the hit list of Iran. Erdogan says Jerusalem is our city. There is some pressure building. The French president, Macron, says Islam is in crisis all over the world as he unveiled a proposal to rid France of Islamic separatism which has created a parallel society living outside the country's values. And since then, his generals have sit, and soldiers in the country's military have twice sent out an open letter saying civil war is just around the corner in France. Between Islamist and French. And the United States? 
things calmed down after the election, right? A little bit? A little bit. What you think is going to happen as we go into the 2012 midterms? They're, both sides are winding up already for that. This whole world's going crazy. But I have good news as we go along through here. Uh, National Guard was ready in Washington, D.C. after, uh, well, this was actually before the riot that they were starting to get ready. Jesus goes on. So, so far, wars and rumors of wars, we've got all that, right? For nation will rise against nation and the kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. I mean, you've got earthquakes and volcanoes blasting all over the place. Um, that was just an earthquake followed by a tsunami a few years ago in Japan. Thousands died. That was in a, near Montgomery, Alabama when I was doing a 10-day seminar there about two years ago. Um, tornado. You guys know what those are, don't you? I live in a state where they don't know what they are. But, uh, well, they know what they are. They just don't have them. But we had a guy on his way home from the meeting, and he stopped to let somebody out of the car that he was given a ride to, and up in the distance, all of a sudden, the gas station in front of him was gone. That kind of stuff. That was the same storm, just not the same spot. He said, man, was I glad I gave that guy right a home. Or I'd have been right there. <laughs> then came COVID-19. You've heard of that one, haven't you? And the world got even crazier. But Jesus has an answer for all of us. He goes on, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. If you hang on to Jesus, he will hang on to you. Notice the most important thing is he's hanging on to you if you don't tell him to let go. (laughs) And he will get you through. He said, let not your heart be troubled when you look at this world. He's going to get you out of it. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. All these other things have been increasing like birth pains. But the best thing of all to watch for is the gospel going to all the world. And friends, it's going all over the world. It's going by satellite. It's going by shortwave radio. It's going by internet. Man, I get to go in the countries by internet that I'd be dead if I went in in person. I've got a friend that's got an underground network, and it's just one of many. But my friend has an underground network working in Muslim countries where he has have over 500,000 Muslims that are following Jesus in the Bible. I'll tell you more about that in presentation five. Then in 2 Timothy, we get this from God about the time of the end that we live in. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Really? Yeah, that sounds like us. For men will be lovers of themselves, 
lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That sounds like our world, doesn't it? Sounds like what you hear on the news. Do you notice there's not a period at the end of that? I stopped it partway through a phrase because I wanted to talk about it first. This is not talking about the world. This is talking about end-time Christianity. That's the bad part. Take a look. Having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. The average person out there doesn't claim to be a Christian anymore. Seriously, the statistics are the average person doesn't claim to be a Christian. And so these are those having a form of godliness that are claiming to be Christian, but they're not really acting it. Is Christianity really in that much trouble today? Yes, we have the numbers. This is actually a couple of years ago, which means it's even worse now. All right? So let's get the research. It's from the Barna Research Group, which does Christian research around North America in particular. 62% of Protestants are born again. Of the people attending church, the Protestants, 62% of them are born again. Born again, according to Barna, this was what he used. They've had a personal experience with Jesus, and because of that personal experience, they've admitted their sinners, they've accepted Jesus' forgiveness and offer of eternal life, and they're trusting in Jesus to go to heaven, born again. Okay, based on that one, I'm born again. I hope you are. 22% of Roman Catholics are born again. So if you take a look at Christians in North America that are going to church, it comes out that about 50% of those going to church a couple years ago were born again. Only half of the people going to church have an idea where they stand with God. That's kind of sad. But then they ask another question, and it gets a lot worse. How many of these born-again people have a biblical worldview? What is a biblical worldview? Well, here we go. They believe in absolute moral truth. They believe the Bible is the standard of that moral truth. They believe that God exists and he's loving and that Jesus lived a sinless life. They also believe in an existence of Satan, and he's not loving and kind. Salvation is a gift. It is not earned. Personal responsibility to share the gospel and a reliability of Scripture. Personal uh, responsibility to share the gospel. If you're a Christian, does your neighbor know? Have you shared anything? Just wondering. Reliability of Scripture? Man, If I didn't believe in Scripture, I wouldn't have gone to some of the places I've gone and taken the risk I do. And I've got friends that have done a lot more bold things than I have for Jesus with greater risk. So, only about 9% of the born-again believers are born again. Since there were only half of them that were born again, that means only about 5 out of 100 Christians are born again with a biblical worldview. Hmm. But the Bible said at the end, Christianity was going to be a mess. So, yep, the Bible's right again. God doesn't miss. So don't give up. 
I don't know if you're church attenders or not. I don't know even who's a member of this church or not. And that's fine. But when I was a young man, I almost let go and gave up on Christianity because I met some Christians who weren't. Oh, they claimed to be Christian, and that was the problem. And I came very close to saying, if this is what Christianity is, who needs it? But remember, there are a few real ones out there. You're going to run in the 95 out of 100 that probably are problematic. But there's a few real ones out there. Don't give up. Um, Here's what the Bible says about it. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, God's saying he's not looking for one hour a week Christians at the worship service. He's not looking for Christians that are one day a week Christians. He's looking for 24-7 Christians that are doing all to the glory of God. Because when you're only part-time Christians, you're actually turning people off often. Here's what Gandhi said. I would consider being a Christian if it weren't for Christians. I like your Jesus, but I'm not so sure about his followers, he said. And there's a lot of truth in that. The Bible even said to expect that. Now, tonight, I'm going to be talking about Daniel 11:2 through 12:3. It comes from the largest, longest vision in the whole book of Daniel. Every other vision is contained in one chapter. This final vision has three chapters. But in Daniel 11:2 through 12:3, it covers from Daniel's time all the way to God's kingdom. So that is going to be our focus in this seminar. It is sequential and it's got 2,500 years of accuracy so far and he uses country names, etc. in this and they have always been exactly as predicted. It's often overlooked because it doesn't match what everybody teaches about Bible prophecy. But it's got some really neat stuff in it. Now, Daniel 2, 7, and 8 are parallel. Each one repeats over the same stuff from Daniel's time to God's kingdom, but it keeps adding more information. And when you get to Daniel 11, the longest of them all, guess what? It adds even more. But it's parallel, and you can go back and forth in the parallels, and you can gain detail. We're also going to skip it over to Matthew some and Revelation And we're going to gather the details from those prophecies. So we have kind of the outline or the filing system in Daniel 11 with these very short cryptic statements, but they're in sequential order. And we're going to gather the detail to fill out the picture for for us as we travel through this and see the story of how God deals with his people. Daniel 2, a king's dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He wakes up in the morning and he cannot remember what it was. And he calls his wise men in and says, whoever... can do this, you know, I'll give you great rewards, and if you can't do it, I'm going to make you dead. They said, fine, king, tell us the dream, and we'll come up with an interpretation, make up an interpretation, really, what they do. And he said, no, I can't remember it. Tell me what I dreamed and what it means. I said, oh, king, nobody can do that. And he's saying, well, you claim to have connection with the gods, and if the gods give the dream, then they could tell you the dream and what it means. He decides they're frauds, and he has them all 
ordered to put him to death. Daniel's a rookie wise man, and he wasn't called in on that one. And Daniel gets a knock at the door. And it's the guards collecting the people, the wise men to execute him. And that includes him. He says, what's going on? They tell him, he says, take me to the king. Goes to the king and he asks the king for some time that his God can do this. King decides to give him a chance. Daniel prays with his three friends and God gives him the dream. He goes back in and he says, king, can nobody do this? No. He said, I can't either. But my God can and he has revealed it to me. Notice Daniel wasn't about to take credit for what God is doing. He wanted the king to know only God can do this. The only way Daniel's chapter 11 vision can be sequential and accurate for 2,500 years is not because Daniel's so smart, because it's the same God that did Daniel 2, does Daniel 11, and gives him the information. And so he said, King, you saw a statue. It had head of gold, chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And while you were watching, a stone was cut out without hands, strikes it on the feet, grinds the whole thing in the powder, it blows away, and the stone takes over the world. And the king's going, that's what I dreamed last night. Or a day or two ago, whichever it was. If I was to tell you what you dreamed a day or two ago, would that get your attention? And you told nobody about it? That got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And then Daniel said, Okay, king, you're the head of gold, Babylon. After you will come another kingdom. And Daniel 7, 8, and 11, he's going to name it as the Medes and the Persians. Uh, He's going to name the next kingdom as Greece. He doesn't name Rome, but describes it, and that's when the Messiah shows up. And Jesus came in that next period, and that was Rome. And then that kingdom will kind of just kind of blend out and mix with other things and iron and clay and it's during that divided Roman time period that Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom. In other words, folks, we're down in the toenails of time. And uh, we've been there for a while. And Daniel 11 prophecies, time of the end phase, has now begun, which is exciting. Daniel 7 just uses God's cartoons. That's really what they are. These animals, interesting animals with lion's wings, Babylon, bear, Medes and the Persians, the leopard with four heads and wings, that's the Greeks, and then a dragon-like beast with horns and iron claws and and teeth. Uh, Iron? Uh, Just like Rome in Daniel 2. There's ties back and forth between the visions. And uh, so you got Rome back there. Tonight, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 22 and give you an overview. Verse 22 will get us all the way to the time of Christ. I want you to notice, in your study guide, you're going to find that the last two pages are two-columned. The column on the left will have the prophecy. The column on the right is how it was historically fulfilled. I am not going to go over every one of these verses. Here's why. Most of you do not like history that well. Most of you didn't have history as your favorite class in high school. A few of you did. I did. It was my easy A. Because I already had fallen in love with history. I'd been reading autobiographies and stories about people for a long time. And history just was really easy after that. I know not all my friends agreed with me. (laughs) But we're going to give a brief overview of that and get up to the time of Christ tonight. Um, So... But the detail is there, and any good history book 
will give you expanded information from that starting point, all right? In Daniel 11, you need to know who the king of the north is and who the king of the south is. Jeremiah, which was Daniel's prophet when he was a kid, they lived at the same time. And Jeremiah gave the key. Here's what he said. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land, speaking in the land of Judah and Israel, Jerusalem. For behold, I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the earth, says the Lord. They shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. So which direction is Babylon coming from? The north. Very clear. In Daniel 2 and 7, it starts with Babylon. All right, now let's take a look. Here's Babylon. That's east of Jerusalem. It's not north. But there's a major issue. In between is a desert. If you march your army from Babylon straight west to Jerusalem, you've got a lot of animals that need a lot of water. And there's no water out there. Your army will die with the animals. So they go up the Euphrates River Valley and they drop down on Jerusalem from the north, just like Jeremiah predicted. Now you're going to have a whole series of kingdoms from the north. King, king of the north. It's which way do they attack or occupy Jerusalem from when they come into Jerusalem? They're going to come from the north. Now you have a desert to the east. You have water to the west. And the ancient navies only went along the coast anyway. They didn't like to go out and they were open. So which two directions would Jerusalem tend to get attacked from? North and south. Hence you have a king of the north and a king of the south. Daniel 11, twice in two time periods, brings in a king of the south. You get Persian rule in verse, Daniel 11, verse 2. Here's what it says. And I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. Notice this is not symbolic. Persia actually means Persia. This is why I like Daniel so much better. It's not symbolic. <laughs> he just tells you what it is. I mean, yes, he uses some symbol animals and stuff like that. But he's, when he's using place names, he says what he means. And the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? From Daniel's time, there's going to be four more kings, and the fourth one will attack Greece. So let's take a look. We have the Medes and the Persians. They conquer Babylon and then occupy Jerusalem from the north. Jeremiah called the Medes and the Persians a kingdom of the north. Here it is in chapter 50. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. There was the king of the north. That fourth king is going to attack Greece. He loses because right afterwards, in the next verse, it focuses on Greece. That fourth king is Xerxes the Great, otherwise known to most of you as Queen Esther's husband. He attacked Greece before he married her. He attacked Greece and lost. There were 10 to 12 more Persian kings after him. 
But once in Daniel 11, once the Greeks attack, I mean the Persians attack Greece and lose, Greece is considered as a has-been and you forget about it and you focus on the rising power. It goes to Greece. Daniel 11 on up through 4. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. That's um, Alexander the Great. And when he's arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So Alexander basically conquers his known world by his mid-30s. He dies in a drunken stupor with a fever because they got him drunk thinking somehow that would help. It's just like they bled George Washington to death somehow thinking that was going to help him. Uh, Medicine could be really, really deadly back then. (laughs) And Alexander dies without having a known heir. Just like it says. And his kingdom is split multiple ways, eventually settling in the four major parts. Basically, as he's dying, his generals say, who should take your place? And he basically says, may the best guy win. And it rips it apart into four pieces. So we have Greece. And the Greeks, Alexander the Great, came in from the north. But the Greek empire splits four ways. And in Daniel 11, after saying it splits four ways, he only is concerned about two of them, Seleucid north, Ptolemy south. And if you put it on a map, you can find out why he's concerned about those two. They fight back and forth in what city gets caught in the middle. Jerusalem. Jerusalem and God's people are caught in the middle. From this time on, in Daniel chapter 11, God's people are caught in the middle. And what I'm going to be eventually showing you is that if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know where you're going to get caught? You get caught in the middle too. Maybe it's already felt that way sometimes. It is because it is that way. But there's good news in here for people caught in the middle. Then... We have the last of the Seleucid Seleucid king of the north, Antiochus. Well, he's not the last, just like Xerxes the Great wasn't the last, but he's the last in the prophecy run. All right? We have Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. It says several things about him. He will send his daughter down to Egypt. She will become queen, but she will not stand with him. He will head west. He will be met by a general and defeated, return home and die. Five good reasons that Antiochus should have paid attention to Bible prophecy. But he doesn't, and he fulfills them in sequence, as given. Why should you know Bible prophecy? Because if you don't pay attention to Bible prophecy, you may be on the wrong side and fulfill it to your own hurt. It's a lot better to know where God's leading and be in harmony with him. I tell people I'm allergic to losing, and I know God's going to win. I want to be on his side. (laughs) But here we go. He sends his daughter Cleopatra down to Egypt. And a lot of you think you've heard about her, right? Heard about Cleopatra? You've heard about Cleopatra 7, Mark Antony and Cleopatra? She was born in Egypt. It's not her. Cleopatra 1 was Antiochus the Great's daughter, born up in Syria, and she goes down in an arranged marriage. She becomes queen. She does not stand with her father. She stays neutral when he wants military assistance. 
He heads west to meet the Romans. The Romans send out a general to meet him. They defeat him. They send him home to collect money to pay them a tribute, which is a tax for losing a war. And he goes home. Man, the last thing this guy should have done is go home because it says he's going to go home and fall, meaning die. So he goes home. He raids a pagan temple to get all the art treasures to pay off the Romans and his own people assassinate him. Fulfilling five things in sequence as described in the prophecy. Daniel doesn't miss. That should bring us to Rome. And sure enough, the next verse is about Rome. The Roman phase kicks in. Legs of iron, dragon-like beast, and Pompey comes into Jerusalem from the north. Interestingly, he, he first came down into Africa, went back up to Rome, went over to Syria, and then dropped down on Jerusalem from the north. It was almost like Satan says, come on, let's go around here and mess this up. But no, he got called back to Rome. Then he did it the other way. Take a look at what the text actually says, verses 20 to 22. There shall arise in his place, in the place of the Greek king of the north, one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Well, that can't be Julius, because he died in anger. I mean, if Biden was stabbed to death on the steps of the Senate, would you think somebody was angry? Julius was stabbed to death on the steps of the Roman Senate. Somebody was upset. Augustus apparently dies of natural causes. Also, was he involved in taxing the glorious lander Israel? Well, Luke 2.1, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Well, some people say, well, actually that was a census, and it was. Do you know what the census was used for? Taxing people. I don't care which way you go, it still gets to the same spot. Uh, Continuing, and in his place, in the place of Augustus, shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Tiberius was known as a vile person, even by the Romans. He would not have the title or the honor of royalty. Well, Pater Patre was a title that Caesar's before him had and Caesar's after him had, and he did not. Now, the Senate offered it to him early on, and he didn't take it. He was going to show how humble he was. He didn't take it, but he was going to take it the next time they offered it to him, but they never did again. So it's interesting. He didn't get that honor of royalty. And with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. In the trial of Jesus, well, let's back up for a moment. Before the death of Jesus, the Jewish leadership, remember, said, we are servants to no one. They claimed they had not surrendered to Rome, and they truly, technically had not. They had had a treaty with Rome. They had not surrendered to Rome. But during the trial of Jesus... What did they say in a flood of emotion? We have no king but Caesar. Well, if they have no king but Caesar, if they've given up on God as their king and King Caesar is their king, they have now surrendered. 
And then Jesus, the Messiah, was broken for my sins and your sins. It was expanded in Daniel chapter 9. It's amazing prophecy here. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So we have this 70-week prophecy. In Bible prophecy, a day symbolizes a year. And so you have each day representing a year. You have it in Ezekiel 4.6. You have it in Numbers 14.34. So let's just take a look at this. So that would be 70 weeks or 490 years. From the decree to rebuild Jerusalem till Messiah, the prince was supposed to be 7 and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. And the Messiah, the prince, is going to be cut off sometime after the 62 weeks which 7 plus 62, so he's after the 62, so it's after the 6. Just remember, whenever the text says after the 62, the 7 was before that, so you're 69 weeks into it. That's 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem till Messiah the Prince. So all you have to do is find out where the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is. Now, do need you to know one other piece. When you go from B.C. to A.D., there was no zero year. So mathematically, you would normally go minus one, zero, plus one. That would be two years from minus one to one. Without a zero year, it's only one year instead of the normal two. So to keep your math right, you always have to add one on the other end because there was no zero year. I mean, remember, if you were alive at this time, they weren't talking about BC BC or the common era or the current era. It was just... The whatever year of king, in this case, uh, Herod or Augustus. Now, let's take a look. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 7 is 457 B.C. Take 490 years from that, if you did the whole thing, it would bring you the 33 A.D., add one, that would bring you 34. But we wanted 69, didn't we? Let's take a look at that. 457 B.C., 483 years brings us 26, add one for the lack of the zero year, and you're now at 27 AD. Jesus was not born around 27 AD. He was born somewhere in around 3 to 5 BC, somewhere in that neighborhood. So what do we have here? 457 BC should bring us to 27 AD and Messiah the Prince. Now, believe it or not, there is only one dated event in the Bible on the ministry of Jesus Christ that is definitely dated. Here it is. Luke 3. It's the baptism of Jesus. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, a dated year. Now, it's a little complicated unpacking that because you're dealing, transferring from ancient to current and all that stuff. 
when, oh, it's also when so-and-so was governor and this was king of that, and there's a whole list in there. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was opened. Messiah means the anointed one. When was Jesus anointed? At his baptism. Heaven's open and the Holy Spirit descends on him. He came up to the baptism serving as a carpenter from Nazareth. And from that moment on, he starts saying, the time has come. The kingdom is here. His ministry had now begun. He'd been anointed for ministry. And the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is 27 AD, as pointed out with the 69 weeks. So we have the baptism of Jesus. Now, if you look carefully at the Gospels, there's three and a half Passover cycles. And so Jesus dies. Well, look, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. I'm a Christian. At least several of you probably are Christian. I hope so. However, when you sin as a Christian, do you offer an animal sacrifice? Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he says it's finished, and it brings an end to sacrifice and offering, just like it said it would. The time fit. And when he says it's finished, the temple veil is torn in half from top to bottom, indicating from God's perspective those animal sacrifices were done. So the cross is in the right spot. And then three and a half years later, we have the stoning of Stephen, and we have Paul that was part of that stoning. He goes out to persecute Christians, and Jesus knocks him flat with a bright light. And Jesus said to him, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And the gospel now goes to the Gentile world in a spectacular way. And what is the focus? Jesus. Jesus is the focus. Now, interestingly, in Daniel 11, God's people get caught in the middle. But there are 45 verses in Daniel 11, and Jesus is broken or dies in verse 22. That's right about where? In the middle. Get this. God's people get caught in the middle. Jesus dies in the middle. He knows what it's like to be in the middle. And at the end of it, he rescues his people that are caught in the middle. So really, it's a story of how God is going to work through history with his people. Now, I don't know if you have a good relationship with Jesus Christ or not. I don't know if you're one of those people who has a born-again experience. And I don't know if you have a biblical worldview. But my goal is to make sure you have a born-again experience and you have a biblical worldview by the time we're done. All right? Where do you stand with Jesus? If you know all there is to know about Bible prophecy and don't know Jesus, you're going to be in trouble because he's going to show up and say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. But if you don't know much about Bible prophecy, but you have a good living connection with Jesus Christ, he's going to show up and say, welcome home, child. Which one would you rather hear? (laughs) here's the best way. Know Jesus and know Bible prophecy. Because Bible prophecy is a light that tells you, it tells me that when the world is going crazy and falling apart at the seams, at least so it seems, that it's all following the pattern that Jesus said to watch for right before he delivers his people. 
And so instead of being discouraged when all the world goes crazy, it's encouraging that Jesus is about to rescue his people. And it encourages you to share the good news with other people. Now, as I said, I don't know if you have a good relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to share a gospel presentation just briefly. I'm a believer in them. When I was just had finished high school, I went to a camp meeting. And the person up front said, if somebody was to ask you how to be a Christian, could you be a Christian? Do you know how to answer it? And I thought, yeah, I'm a good Christian. I've been raised in a Christian home. How would I answer that? Uh-oh. If I claim to be a Christian and I don't know how to be a, tell somebody how to be a Christian, I might not really be one. Because if I really knew how to be one, I could probably tell somebody. <laughs> so I listened and I took notes so I could tell somebody else how to be a Christian because I'm a good Christian. I took those notes home and before I went to work every morning, uh, I studied those notes. And before the week was over, I got to lead my first person to Jesus Christ. It was wonderful. I've been doing it ever since. The first person I led to Jesus Christ happens to be me with those notes. (laughs) And it was such good news, I had to share it with other people. Basically, here it is. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, somehow I'd gotten the wrong idea that I had to be a little bit better than I was bad in the scales of God's justice. And I didn't know how heavy the good things were and how heavy the bad things were. So I never knew where I was. That's not good news. That's fearful. And all of a sudden I realized something. The wages of sin is what? The gift of God is what? There's no, where am I? It's slam dunk one way or the other. And you can know where you stand. Well, that was good news. How does it work? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. There's a conditional statement in there though. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. Tomorrow I'm going to tell a story in your worship service. What time's your worship service, Pastor? It's at 1045, 11 o'clock. 1045, 11 o'clock, okay. Uh, if you want to hear the story, it's how God took the worst I've ever done and used it for good, which happened to be a felony that I didn't get caught for until I turned myself in. (laughs) Nobody knew I did it except the Holy Spirit, and that's enough. (laughs) Uh, Two people ended up saved for eternity, the man I wronged and the person who did it with me. But I could blame somebody else. Lord, it wasn't my fault. Mark did it. Well, Mark did lead out in it. But it's like God would say, you, you want me to forgive Mark? What about you? Did you do it? When I can come out and say, yes, Lord, I did it. I can now be forgiven. I have to admit it. If we confess our sins, he'll take care of it. 
By the way, how many times do you have to ask forgiveness for that really awful thing you did in your past? One time. Not 101. Not 110. One time. The first time when you do it, Satan tries to tell you it's not that bad. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to ask forgiveness. You ask forgiveness, and now Satan's going to come back and say, man, you're really bad, but you should ask again. You're really bad, you should ask again. You should ask again. And you get into a doubt spiral, and you doubt if God really did it. I don't like doubt spirals. I like praise spirals. Here's how you do it. The first time you ask God to forgive you, the second time, instead of asking him to forgive you again, because it's already done, you thank God for already doing it, and you start praising him for already taking care of it. And I like a praise spiral better than a doubt spiral. Now, let's keep going. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. When I've accepted Jesus Christ, it goes from lost to I know I have eternal life. Not because I'm so good, because he is. That's good news. And Jesus answered them, John eight thirty four. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so, friends, here's what happens. Jesus forgives your sins, your record's clean. He sends the Holy Spirit into your life then to change you from the inside out, to live in harmony with his law. Well, it's an ongoing process that every once in a while you have a few issues that come up as you have to deal with it. But he cleanses the past, sends the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. And friends, which one of those did I do? Neither. I just gave him permission to do it. He does it for you. You're not good enough. The wages of sin is death. We've all proved that. But the gift of God, he takes care of the past and he'll change me from the inside out in the present. It's awesome. What if you sin again? My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You blow it, you just come to Jesus and you say, hey, I'm sorry, I blew it again. Please forgive me. And he does. And he keeps on working through his spirit to change you from the inside out. So do you see what Christ wants? He wants to take the death you deserve and give you the life he deserves. It's because he loves you so much. Have you ever thought of accepting him? I would just suggest if you have, it's better to do it sooner than later. Why? Well, do you like misery and guilt or do you like joy and peace? I'd suggest you let him have it so you can have joy and peace. I like it a lot better, personally. Uh, Would you like to do it now? Now, I'm not going to make you come up front. I'm not going to make you raise your hand because it's not a deal between you and me. It's not a deal between you and a church. By the way, no church saves you. Only Jesus does. And I'm just going to ask that I'm going to pray this as if it was my first time. And if you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you just pray along with me silently and God knows your heart. Maybe you've wandered away. Maybe it's time to just say, Lord, 
I've been away. I'm coming back. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to suffer and die to pay the penalty for my sins. I admit that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I also want you to be Lord of my life, so I ask that you'll pour the Holy Spirit out in my life to change me from the inside out. Thank you for what you have done and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to give you just a brief synopsis of where we go in the next nine presentations. Daniel eleven twenty five to 45, divided Christian Europe versus Islam. The Roman Empire breaks up. Islam attacks Jerusalem from the north and the Crusades. Christianity comes in from the north. Islam the south, Christianity the north. It's in the history. And what city gets caught in the middle again? Jerusalem does. So we have these three conflicts. And there are some Christians and some Muslims that ask me here, do the Christians and the Muslims worship the same God? Be very careful about answering that with a yes or no. Here's what Jesus said. That his true followers would love their enemies and do good to those who persecuted them. All right? If I use that definition, I can go to the Crusades. Was it the Muslim jihadist or the Christian crusaders who loved their enemies and did good to the other side? Yeah, I'm seeing people going, yeah, that, neither. That's right. So here's my answer. Do they have the same God? Many Muslims and many Christians are worshiping the same false God of force, fear, and anger, do it our way or else. While some Christians and some Muslims have found or are in search of the same true God of love, truth, peace, and forgiveness. And what's amazing in Daniel 11, it's going to show us that there's a group of Muslims and a group of Christians at the end that come together to share Jesus and the biblical message to the world. That's interesting. That's what it says. You know, Jesus made it clear that we didn't, couldn't hate anybody and be his followers. So this isn't going to be about hating somebody. We're going to have to learn how to love people to really follow the God of Scripture. Daniel 12, 1 through 3, God's people are delivered and live with him forever and ever. Not a bad ending. It's going to be honest and tell us the problems that both Islam and Christianity has had along the line. It's going to show how you can get caught in the middle and will be. But then it shows how Jesus will rescue you when you get caught in the middle. So it's really good news. So what are the basics you need to remember from the night? Jerusalem gets caught in the middle. God's people get caught in the middle. But so did Jesus. And God wins. And you do too if you're with him. If you can remember that much from tonight, you're ready for the next presentation. I gave you more than that just so you know that it's deeper. And I gave you more in writing that's even deeper than what I said. All right? It's not just a shallow thing. There's a lot here, but this is what you need to remember. All right? Now, tomorrow night is the king of the north, Little Horn, and the beast. 
It's one of the most politically incorrect. Well, there's two really strongly politically incorrect presentations I'll be making, and this is one of them. Uh, but you'll have to come and see if it's biblically correct. The King of the North and the Little Horn and the Beast. All right, that's tomorrow night. This evening, when you leave here, if I think they're supposed to have somebody at the door. All you need to do to register is to drop off your registration card. Now, that will give you number one. You can come back tomorrow at 5.30, right, or 5.45? 5.45. And hear number one again, if you want to. All right? If you come came tonight and come tomorrow night at 5.45, you still only have one because you've only got presentation one. You have to have eight different presentations. But here's the deal. You could skip tomorrow night and come back Sunday night at 5.45 and get number two. And then at 7.30, get number three. Skip a night, get four and five. Skip a night, get six and seven. Do you catch? You can come every other night and have perfect attendance. Actually, you have to come six times to get perfect attendance. If you would have started tomorrow night at 545, you could come in five times and get perfect attendance. (laughs) But you started one day early to do that. But if you have a friend that should hear this, make sure that you pick up one of these brochure schedules. Give it to them. They can start as late as Monday at 545 and still get eight of ten presentations and get one of those concordances. But what we're going to be doing, I better share this. Tomorrow night, presentation two, we're going to unpack who the king of the north is. The next night, presentation three, we're going to show you the role of the U.S. in prophecy. And yes, I believe it has a role, and I'll demonstrate it. Number four is the role of Israel. And on Tuesday night is the role of Islam. And when we get to that, we will put all the pieces into motion and give you the current events on where we are right at this moment. If you can get somebody to come only one time Tuesday night, because I'm going to go long on Tuesday night. If you want the shorter version, you show up Wednesday at 545, and I'll try and jam it into an hour. Most people would rather the longer one. Also, I, I should tell you that a lot of people tell me they learn more the second time they listen to it. So if you're struggling with it, come for the repeat and get it again, and you'll get more the second time usually than the first. Okay, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Word. And Lord, you promised to send the Holy, your Spirit to guide us as we study the Word. I thank you for that promise, and I thank you that you fulfill it. In Jesus' name, amen.